0: Welcome to COVID-19, keeping up with the moving target. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers, with DKB Med. Thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We are pleased to welcome our expert faculty members, Dr. Paul Alwater, clinical director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and Dr. Paul Wong, assistant professor of medicine and general internal medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Alwater and uh, Dr. Wong, thank you so much for your time.
1: Hey, great to be here. Great to be here, Faith.
0: Thank you, and these are the faculty's disclosures. And this educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. So all activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and our faculty. Just as a note, the material presented today is current as of, well, today, October 9th now. Um, So for uh, the most up-to-date guidance, if you're viewing this on demand, we do advise that you go to the NIH or IDSA treatment guidelines for the most contemporary information. Our learning objectives today are to appraise the efficacy, safety, and indications for treatments for patients with COVID requiring hospitalization, evaluate strategies for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19, Explain mechanisms of action of monoclonal antibodies and other current and in-development treatments for COVID-19, and describe best practices for managing patients with COVID-19 with monoclonal antibodies and other agents. I will be handing this off to Dr. Allwater. So Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for your time.
1: OK, uh, thank you so much, Faith. And uh, I, I really appreciate um, everyone that's uh, uh, dialed into this program Uh, this morning or this afternoon, depending where you are. Hospitalists and intensivists really have been the backbone of care for patients uh, who are hospitalized with COVID-19. And uh, what I'd like to do with the first part of my talk before handing it off to my colleague uh, is to uh, just describe some of the things that um, have been changing slightly uh, in recent uh, weeks and months uh, with regards to outpatient care as well as risk factors. And I'm sure uh, many of you who have cared for COVID 19 patients are well aware that you're really seeing people often in that second week of illness when there's a hyperinflammatory response, especially to people that are not immunized, uh, hands down, uh, vaccination uh, with any of the COVID 19 um, vaccines is probably the single most important factor for keeping people out of the hospital. But in that first week of illness, it behaves much more like a typical uh, viral syndrome, flu-like syndrome with fever and cough. And of course, on this early side is where there's the potential for antiviral products, uh, including um, uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies may have some impact. The Centers for Disease Control uh, have been uh, curating a list of risk factors that continue to evolve. And the way they've done this is look uh, not only at US, but global literature, and look at the strength of evidence uh, and risks uh, regarding uh, factors that seem to increase the rate of people with severe COVID-19 landing in the hospital on the left column are those that i think are uncontroversial uh you can see active cancer uh, typical cardiovascular conditions uh, diabetes and so on the, the one that i think is always a linchpin is high bmi so obesity morbid obesity uh, also of course uh, intermingles with many other risk factors but this is uh, something that we've seen time and again in our hospitalized patients. There's less strength of evidence um, in the middle or right-hand column, but uh, the risk factors, especially for thinking about some interventions, such as monoclonal antibodies, have been liberalized to include a number of factors. And one of the items that I would just highlight here is a recent change that even people that are overweight, and that's a BMI of over 25, but under 30 are also included. Sorry, my (laughs) computer does a double skip when I hit. I'll have to try to uh, fix that. Now, besides uh, underlying medical conditions, there are a number of risk factors that could be defined by ethnicity or race uh, uh, that would potentially predict increased risks for hospitalization or death. Uh, This is not so much an intrinsic or genetic risk factor, but more, likely attributable to uh, disparities in care, uh, access, for example, and uh, socioeconomic status. And uh, here uh, with um, uh, Asian uh, non-Hispanic persons having uh, a uh, one-fold or as a baseline, you can see that African Americans, uh, Latinx, and also Native Americans and Alaskans all have increased So we'd like to use a case to help frame um, uh, COVID care, and that would be uh, this gentleman who's 52 and has hypertension but is a smoker, which we know is one of those risk factors for severe uh, COVID-19. He's had 24 hours of flu-like symptoms and now has been noted to have a positive uh, molecular assay for COVID-19. So what treatments could you potentially offer to this patient and, and and also what's happening in the outpatient arena. And I think, uh, first of all, there's still confusion that I find amongst primary care providers and others uh, regarding uh, recommendations. And I've also seen, unfortunately, people that are ill not being as careful as they were earlier in the pandemic. People that are truly infected should be isolated for 10 days. Uh, this includes people that are immunized with breakthrough infections uh, and it's at least 10 days with a 24-hour resolution of symptoms anyone that's a close contact and that's close contacts defined is at least 15 minutes within six feet of an infected person for 24 hours should be quarantined with options for testing that might allow you to uh, leave the quarantine earlier But uh, this, uh, I think, unfortunately, is liberalized, well, not liberalized, but many people don't adhere to uh, this particular aspect. And I think this has certainly uh, been one of the reasons we've seen uh, the surge with the Delta variant, which, of course, uh, intrinsically is much more prone uh, to transmission with higher rates that are 50 to 70 percent higher than the earlier Alpha variant or the ancestral strain of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So as an outpatient um, uh, intervention, we do not have oral therapy yet. There is some promise uh, in uh, recent uh, evidence for potential oral antiviral, but for the moment we only have antibody-based therapies and that's going to be the monoclonal antibodies. And briefly, there are three products uh, that have the potential to be used uh, this particular uh, drug first was bamlanivimab, but that as a single monoclonal is no longer distributed. It is only distributed in combination with a second monoclonal antibody, etesivimab. In combination, these two antibodies bind to the spike protein of the virus to the receptor binding domain at two different spots and have been uh, proven effective even uh, with the Delta variant. Uh, and. For example, this study, again, for patients at high risk in the outpatient arena, uh, had a significant reduction, nearly 90% uh, in hospitalization or death as a composite compared to those that received placebo. And this particular drug uh, was not halted uh, by Health and Human Services this summer because it didn't work as well against the beta and gamma variant, but these variants are not circulating to any great degree. Uh, so it was reintroduced later in the summer. Uh, So this may be one of the free drugs that are being distributed to states for uh, monoclonal antibody infusion. The second uh, drug, which has never been halted and has always seemed to have good activity, again, utilizes two different monoclonals, casirivimab and indivimab, again, binding to two different sites on Uh, the spike protein, and it too, regardless of this dose-finding phase 3 trial, had a 70% reduction in patients at high risk for landing in the hospital or dying. And uh, the FDA chose a lower dose of 1,200 milligrams, and this um, is probably also a widely used drug. The last one is citrovimab, an interesting single monoclonal that was actually derived uh, from a patient recovered from the original SARS-CoV-1 20 years ago. But this binds to a highly conserved domain, um, receptor binding domain of the spike protein. And in a a smaller trial in high-risk patients, it too had an 85% reduction. Uh, This drug, uh, though, um, is not being distributed for free, so it's not being used quite as widely uh, because it has to be purchased in the traditional manner, even though it only has emergency use authorization, which is true for all three products. None of them are fully FDA approved yet. Uh, But it's worth stating that not only in the United States, but worldwide, the Delta variant shown here in orange is by far and away, the predominant circulating variant having displaced other variants of concern such as alpha, gamma, and beta. uh, We just see very little of those virus and uh, other variants of interest also in very tiny numbers. So Delta, the Delta variant is the one that uh, looks like it's here to stay at least for a while. Um, and if you look at in vitro uh, susceptibilities using these monoclonals, uh, and these are generally pseudo-neutralization assays, you can see citrovimab, caservimab, and divimab uh, appear to neutralize virus very effectively with no change in titer compared to earlier uh, circulating in ancestral strain of the Wuhan strain of the SARS-CoV-2. Uh, whereas bamlanivimab uh, at Tisivimab uh, was halted this summer, as you can see, because of beta and gamma, uh, but Delta uh, has only a modest decrease, so uh, still is effective and hence is now being uh, released again and used. So, uh, regarding outpatient use, it's only for uh, patients with mild to moderate. Uh, COVID-19. So they're not in the hospital because of um, SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, uh, They have to be at least adolescents or adults uh, with less than 10 days of symptoms. But I'll mention the studies that you've just seen. uh, Generally, uh, the drug is infused on the fourth day of symptoms. And as you would expect from antibody-based therapy, the earlier, the better in this case. Uh, The Sorry, just going back here. Uh, These can only be given in an area where there's a crash cart, although uh, we don't have time to go over the safety profile, but there's really minimal adverse reaction to these products and generally well tolerated. There are links at the bottom to the uh, FDA uh, healthcare provider fact sheets that I always find very helpful to refer to. Now, these drugs um, are generally distributed to only certain sites or emergency rooms. So you do have to be aware in your local area of where to go uh, for this. And usually the state health department uh, where you are located, you can look for monoclonal antibody therapy and there will generally be areas um, on the webpage where you can find uh, who's administering it and the referral mechanism since it is uh, uh, generally uh, given as an intravenous therapy. Again, uh, the criteria uh, you see here, which incorporates many of the risk factors which we previously explained, uh, and also uh, expanded the list uh, for patients uh, who are at risk of progression, so even includes, for example, overweight people with a BMI of over 25. And I'll mention this, uh, for symptomatic patients even who have been immunized, they would still fit on this, although some centers, uh, because of increasing demand lately for monoclonals, may be trying to prioritize those are unimmunized or uh, are known to poorly respond to vaccine as priority patients. And that could include, for example, people who are on rituximab or solid organ transplants and so on that may not respond well to the vaccine. So uh, who might want to get these? It's clearly mostly a benefit uh, as soon as possible. Think of this just like oseltamivir for influenza, the earlier you can get the compound on board, the better. Um, and you certainly would like to try to test uh, patients early on to prove that they have SARS-CoV-2 and not another infection, so they might be eligible. Uh, it is not to be used for hospitalized patients. However, I'll mention that um, although uh, the recommendations here uh, by both the NIH and the IDSA, pretty much uh, comport with the uh, EUA from the FDA recommending use uh, because of their effectiveness here. Um, uh, so uh, the societies do advocate it, but there may be a role for hospitalized patients. Um, it, 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 uh, and I'll get to that in a moment, and, but I'll first point out there is a post-exposure prophylaxis. So again, if you've had a close contact someone that's at risk for disease. Uh, There is a reduction with the administration, which could also be given subcutaneously, which is an advantage if you uh, don't have the ability to put in the angiocap. Uh, They have to receive this uh, generally uh, within a a period of time after the exposure, 96 hours, only to high-risk people that are either unimmunized or wouldn't have adequate response to vaccine again, uh, adolescents or adults. The uh, uh, same is true for bamlanivimab and etisivimab. So these are the two combinations uh, that are allowed for so-called post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, Lastly, and I got ahead of myself a little bit, but hospitalized patients do benefit, but it 's only the zero negative patients. the large recovery trial from the u k nearly ten thousand patients generally administering very high amounts of the monoclonals here four grams um, uh, to this patient population, you can see in the right hand part of the slide uh, had margin it uh, really did not have benefit, but if you looked at the zero negative subset, the patients that uh, have no presence of anti spike antibodies. Um, at the time of hospital admission did benefit with a decreased progression to uh, mechanical ventilation or death. This was also true in another study of almost 1,200 patients just presented last week at ID week uh, that was very similar to the recovery trial. Uh, Again, the seronegative populations appeared to benefit the most here. But interestingly, all comers also appeared to have reduced risk of needing mechanical ventilation or having um, or dying. Uh, So uh, this is something where we may want to consider uh, testing antibodies at time of admission, uh, potentially to see who may benefit if this is authorized. As I mentioned, we do not have oral products yet. but uh, Molnupiravir, a nucleoside analog, um, is in a number of trials, and this one is, has released some information suggesting that early administration, again, may uh, decrease the risk of hospitalization or death with a five-day um, treatment course, and then starting within five days, uh, this trial was actually interrupted early uh, because of the treatment success, especially with mortality as a composite. Part of its endpoint. So, uh, this has um, uh, a drug is now in front of the FDA for an EUA. So, this may be incorporated for outpatient therapy soon. So, uh, in the case of Mr. A, um, he uh, unfortunately uh, declined monoclonal antibody infusion and he got worse. Uh, Unfortunately, he's now presenting with a fever. Uh, He's uh, tachycardic, tachypnic. With um, low oxygen saturation at 84%. Uh, so, what might be potential next steps? And here I'll turn this over to my colleague, Dr. Paul Long. Paul?
2: Yeah, hi. Thank you, Dr. Arwater. Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, yeah, so unfortunately, we could not keep Mr. A out of the hospital. Uh, so, as a hospitalist, I'm running down to the ER to evaluate him. And the first thing I'm thinking is, man, I'm thankful we have hospital beds to admit Mr. A to. Uh, looking at this data here, this is from the CDC, and um, when we uh, presented this lecture a couple months ago, we were on the upward slope, and thankfully, uh, we're now on a downward slope. Of course, there's variability um, in uh, amount of admissions for COVID across the country, but I even looked in uh, Academic Hospital in Texas, and, and, and they're reporting a pretty rapid decline themselves. So I think across the country, we're seeing a potential decline in admissions right now. And I think cautiously optimistic as we head towards the winter season um, about what's going to happen so oh i too clicked twice dr over so let me go back here so what we're going to do we're going to have three bins here we're going to talk about antiviral therapy uh then immunomodulatory therapy and then we're briefly going to hit on anticoagulation and then within antiviral therapy we're going to have two sub bins really First, talking about remdesivir and highlighting a few trials, and then we're going to talk about convalescent plasma. So first up, let's talk about a pretty important trial here. It's the ACT ONE trial. Uh, we're almost coming up on the uh, year anniversary of its publication uh, in the New England Journal. And this trial really looked at primary endpoint was time to recovery. Um, and so when they looked at it, For those who received remdesivir versus those who received placebo, there was a difference of five days, Um, and they used an ordinal scoring system um, where a score of three was you were hospitalized, but you had recovered, and then anything greater than that was either at home uh, uh, or was out of the hospital. Uh, But essentially, they saw a five-day difference. Um, And then there was a trend toward mortality benefit, but there was no statistically uh, significant um, data there. When they broke it down by subgroups, the group that really, and this is the important part, the group that really benefited were those that were receiving supplemental oxygen, uh, but were not yet so sick that they were receiving mechanical ventilation. So the the group that benefited the most were those who were uh, in this sort of middle category. They were not yet mild, or they were not yet in the severe category, but really in the middle. And safety profile was pretty similar between treatment and uh, placebo uh, uh, in this study. And another uh, study that supported uh, time to clinical improvement was this one. This was a case control uh, study, and it's an important one because it has a very diverse uh, patient population. 80% of subjects were non-white. And if you look at time to clinical improvement, it was five days for remdesivir versus seven days. And again, there was a trend towards mortality benefit, uh, but not statistically significant. So we're going to transition towards talking about two key trials that showed a little different data. So first off is the Solidarity trial. Um, this is a WHO-sponsored uh, trial looking at different drugs, but remdesivir will focus in on here. And the primary outcome here was in-hospital mortality, uh, with the secondary outcomes being initiation of mechanical ventilation and duration of hospitalization. And Within the remdesivir arm of this study, there was no impact on mortality or initiation of mechanical ventilation or length of hospitalization. But there were some limitations. Uh, there was definitely variation uh, um, in uh, study sites, and then it was open label. So this would introduce bias uh, for practitioners who were providing remdesivir. They would know they're providing remdesivir and perhaps would keep someone longer to complete uh, treatment. There was also no data on time from symptom onset to treatment initiation, which is important, and then there was no assessment in the post-discharge period. And then let's talk about the discovery trial. So this was uh, published recently. So this was an open-label adaptive multi-site trial. It was in five different uh, uh, European countries, and they compared standard of care versus standard of care plus different medications. Again, we'll focus in on remdesivir. And the primary outcome here was clinical status at day 15, and they used the exact same ordinal scale uh, that was used in the ACT-1 trial. Uh, And you can see they had pretty similar uh, N in both groups. And what they found is that remdesivir was not associated again with better clinical outcome at day 15 and 19. And then they also checked viral clearance and it was not associated with faster viral clearance. There was this subgroup that was not on mechanical ventilation. So again, not those people that are very, very sick. um, And that did show uh, remdesivir significantly delayed time to mechanical ventilation or death in that group. Uh, There were some limitations. Again, this was an open uh, label, uh, and it was not placebo controlled. So I want to pause there and do what all good hospitalists will do, and reach back out to my specialist colleague here. Uh, so, Dr. Iwater, how do I make sense of this? I have I have papers that support cert, uh, you know data in one arm, and I have other papers that are supporting you know contrary data. And it, do we? have a real strong sense of where we're at with remdesivir. Is there more to come? I mean, where, where have we landed with sort of the value of remdesivir at this point?
1: Well, Well, Paul, I think whenever you have an uh, increasing number of studies, you have to sort of understand how they're performed and, and also, of course, what they're purporting to show. The ACT-1 trial, the NIH-sponsored trial, is sort of the gold standard placebo-controlled trial, and that did show a shorter duration of illness. And, and certainly, there have been a number of other studies uh, that back up that shorter duration of illness. Now, the very large Solidarity trial had no mortality benefit, and uh, especially in Europe and and people that don't think remdesivir uh, is worth administering will will point this out. However, uh, I, I admire the trial being done, but again, it, you know, it had four arms; there were no placebo component and. Uh, for example, most of the, uh, a large part of the remdesivir administration was done in Iran, and you could imagine that uh, the the type of care, especially early in the pandemic, could be different than we see here in the United States, or they're presenting later versus earlier. So it's hard to understand uh, if there's not benefit. Again, I think decreasing illness uh, duration, in hospitalized patients, is certainly still a worthwhile goal. Um, and the discovery trial actually supports that in the subgroup where we exactly use it, uh, mostly and, and we use it at Johns Hopkins and that's, uh, for patients that are admitted who are hypoxemic, um, usually also receiving dexamethasone, which we'll talk about. Uh, so, uh, you know, we continue to use it. I would say since it is the only FDA approved drug for COVID-19, it is now not free. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, hospitals have to pay for it, and I think the cost uh, may have also now, uh, since it's a fairly benign drug, but I think the cost has been a factor in some people reconsidering whether it's uh, worth administering. So it depends on your point of view. Are you a hospital administrator? You know, are you worried about mortality? Does uh, shorter duration of illness? Uh, is that something? but you do have to understand each of these studies. But the discovery trial, which we have up here on the slide, I think actually supports the ACT-1 trial.
2: Great. Thank you. Uh, And and, and it's certainly a part of our treatment algorithm at Boston Medical Center uh, as well. So let's move on. Uh, Oh, man. Uh, Did I skip slides again? I don't think I did. Oh, this is just basically uh, pointing out both the NIH and what IDSA have to say. So hospitalized patients that require supplemental oxygen but not through mechanical ventilation or ECMO. So again, that middle group period. And the idea, say, hospitalized patients with severe COVID defined as a saturation less than 94% on room air and requiring supplemental oxygen, but again, not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO. So pretty similar there. So let's talk now about convalescent plasma. Uh, So this is a pooling of human antibodies uh, um, in order to uh, treat someone infected with COVID. So possible mechanisms actions here. Those so, uh, there's direct neutralization of the virus, uh, control of this hyperinflammatory state that we've talked about, uh, and then also an immunomodulation of a hypercoagulable state as well. And so there's been an EUA in February of 2021, but this was only for high titer plasma in hospitalized patients. And we're going to focus in on uh, one study here, which is a meta-analysis uh, um, pulling together and the large study within this meta-analysis was the recovery trial um, which has already been mentioned and again will be mentioned uh, uh, with our dexamethasone uh, discussion Um, they also had a few other randomized control trials in there uh, but it was difficult to synthesize the evidence across all the trials so there was uh, variability in uh, time to uh, treatment so treatment uh, since onset ranged from 72 hours to any time there was various plasma titers used at various doses and then the oxygen supplementation varied as well Uh, and differences in control arms, and then median age ranges from 48 to 76 years. And the conclusions from this meta-analysis were there was no association with decreased mortality, no association with decrease in mechanical ventilation use, and that there was no association with reduction in hospital stay as well, uh, there were some limitations. Uh, there was high bias amongst three of the randomized controlled trials. And then there was uh, data that was limited for some subgroup analysis. And then there was also a low volume of mild to moderate disease. So at my hospital in Boston Medical Center, we, we really have not been using uh, convalescent plasma. It's not something I've experienced. I think early on, there was maybe a few patients that we had used. But I am you know certainly aware that it's it, there's uh, other hospitals around the country that are using it more than we are. Um, Gonna pass the mic back to you, Dr. Alwater, for a sec, because I think you might have a little bit more experience, Johns Hopkins, with convalescent plasma than we have, and just want to sort of, how do you make sense of this meta-analysis and thinking about high
1: titer versus low titer? Yeah. Um, um, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Paul. Uh, well, you know, the the EUA now is only for high titer units, but even high titer, we're not quite sure if you know if that dose is really as much as we would want. So sometimes we end up infusing multiple units. Where we end up using it are in patient populations that we think may not respond well to the vaccine, someone with B cell deficiencies, uh, solid organ transplants that we know a substantial percentage uh, don't respond well to the vaccine or don't make um, neutralizing antibodies very well. Also potentially for patients very early in their phase of illness. Um, This uh, trial, uh, much uh, uh, often, many of these uh, studies, uh, patients were receiving antibodies, the convalescent plasma, on day eight or nine, and this is quite a ways into illness, and we wouldn't expect uh, convalescent plasma to work. So uh, I think for the subset, for patients that might be very early in their phase of illness, perhaps the first. Three days of their hospitalization, of an early part of illness, or immuno-immuno uh, immuno challenge patients are where we're still using it.
2: Gotcha. Thank you. Let's, and so here we go again. Let's review the NH and IDSA uh, statements here. So, NH uh, in hospitalized patients with impaired immunity, insufficient evidence to recommend for or against high titer plasma. And then for in hospitalized patients without impaired immunity recommends against the use of plasma in patients on mechanical ventilation and in patients not on mechanical ventilation. And then the IDSA uh, makes a statement, among patients hospitalized with COVID-19, the panel suggests against con- uh, convalescent plasma use. And among ambulatory patients with mild to moderate COVID, the panel recommends COVID, uh, convalescent plasma only in the context of a clinical trial. So let's shift gears here and talk about immunomodulatory uh, medications. And we'll start with um, dexamethasone here. And we're going to focus in on the recovery trial, which was a very large trial uh, done in the UK. Um, and this is uh, a big trial um, because it uh, s- supported the use of dexamethasone. So if you look overall, there was a benefit in uh, 20, uh, mortality for those who received dexamethasone. And this was most seen in those who were ventilated. And then as you go to patients who are on oxygen, there was still a benefit. But when you get into the group that's not on oxygen, there's actually not a benefit. And in fact, those on dexamethasone uh, did worse. And if you looked at secondary outcomes in this uh, trial, there was improvement in time to recovery. I think it was just one day. Um, and then there was also decreased uh, amount of patients who ended up on mechanical ventilation. Uh, and so the big thing here was it was the first drug to show real mortality benefit across these certain groups. And again, on those on mechanical medicine or on oxygen, but those on, not on oxygen tended to do worse. Uh, it was a pragmatic open label trial. And again, there was uh, higher mortality this was in the UK versus what we've seen in the US. So getting back to our case, Mr. A, he's given remdesivir and started on dexamethasone. Over the next 72 hours, he has worsening hypoxemic respiratory failure and is transferred to the ICU and started on BiPAP. He's also noted to have an increasing CRP. So I'm going to pass it back to you, Dr. Arwater. What are the next steps?
1: Okay, thanks so much, Paul. So, uh, you know, these are the patients that are entering um, that hyperinflammatory phase where uh, the amount of uh, changes in the lung, the infiltrates are worsening. Uh, Patients often ending up in intermediate care units or the intensive care unit, uh, despite what's often used in many centers in the United States, remdesivir and dexamethasone. You might remember way back (laughs) in the early phases of the pandemic, tocilizumab was advocated by the Chinese guidelines uh, based on early experience in uh, the Wuhan area. And this is a monoclonal antibody, but it, it doesn't bind to the spike protein. It's been used in rheumatoid arthritis uh, as an inhibitor of interleukin-6 by binding to the receptor. But it's also used by oncologists in CAR T-cell uh, therapy where there's just this amazing uh, hyperinflammation. And so this drug is used to help quell that. However, early trials did not uh, prove that there was much uh, effectiveness to its use as a single agent. Uh, So it fell out of favor really last summer in the summer of 2020. We had used it early on in the spring, um, but then really stopped using it. The, The trial that I think changed many people's minds was this, again, the recovery trial, a large trial um, and the difference here is that tocilizumab was administered, but people were already on corticosteroids, as uh, Paul mentioned from the earlier recovery trial, uh, they were already on a broad uh, immunomodulator. So this, although it's a targeted one, was added. And uh, what was seen here is a mortality decrease, as well as uh, a shorter duration of illness and more people discharged at, by day 28. Um, And so all of these really transpired to resuscitate tocilizumab, which already um, uh, had some earlier trials, which we'll uh, get to on the next slide. But this was a group, as you can see here, um, uh, if they were using corticosteroids, uh, definitely that favored its use, whereas the subgroup, uh, although much smaller, that didn't get steroids, you can see, Uh, it wasn't quite as uh, significant towards favoring tocilizumab administration. Uh, This uh, was by far and away the largest trial, but two other studies where about 80% of patients were already on steroids, the remap cap, and the impactor trial both had uh, endpoints with improved mortality or composite endpoints with decreased need for ventilation, uh, mechanical ventilation, Uh, So uh, where do we use this particularly? Um, It's really a group uh, of patients that are getting more ill and uh, often with higher amounts of oxygen requirements, high flow, or landing in the ICU. Uh, Now, uh, tocilizumab uh, uh, has been used quite a bit, and especially with the Delta surge this summer, some centers had trouble acquiring tocilizumab. There was essentially a shortage in the supply chain. So many pivoted to this JAK inhibitor, baricitinib, also used in the rheumatology fields, which uh, had a trial early on called ACT-2 that showed a one-day improvement in duration of symptoms, but that did not generate much excitement. But a second trial, the COVE barrier trial, which was a multinational trial, where uh, about 80% of people were also on steroids. Again, steroids plus this uh, immunomodulator together appeared to have a nearly 40% reduction in in, uh, mortality, which was a secondary endpoint. It didn't seem to staunch uh, progression to mechanical ventilation interestingly as much, but there may be other factors, perhaps prevention of uh, problems such as uh, stroke, heart involvement, Um, it's unclear exactly how the mortality benefit was derived. But because of this, uh, uh, centers that couldn't get tocilizumab uh, began using uh, the oral drug baricitinib. So both the NIH and the IDSA have uh, framed either of these drugs as using it for people that are getting worse despite. Uh, uh, initial treatment, so high-flow oxygen, non-invasive ventilation, or in the first 24 hours of ICU care, you could use tocilizumab. Um, The difference, though, uh, is baricitinib really hasn't been studied in that group already in the ICU short term. Uh, So uh, at our hospital, we tend to use tocilizumab, uh, but uh, there can be a case made for the baricitinib. So uh, in Mr. A's case, uh, he was admitted, uh, received supportive care. He got remdesivir, dexamethasone, and tocilizumab. Uh, uh, Certainly uh, it was good news that he had improved um, at this stage. Uh, So I'm gonna uh, pass the baton uh, back to Paul. So as you're getting ready uh, for this patient, um, I guess he'd been in the hospital a few days um, uh, what are you doing at discharge? Are you still continuing uh, dexamethasone? Uh, uh, how are you handling this in this case? Yeah, so I, I am
2: not, once we're discharging, I I have not been uh, continuing dexamethasone after discharge. And uh, is that similar to what you've been doing, Dr. Arwater?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, if someone doesn't need hospitalization care, you know, we're not continuing dexamethasone. I mean, maybe if someone had sort of bronchospasm wheezing or something of that nature from asthma, but by and large, if someone's improved enough to go home, we're, we're not continuing any of our COVID treatments from or dexamethasone, they all can be stopped early. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I agree. And so let's do a recap here, real quick. So uh, this is from the NIH, and I would recommend it uh, all my hospitalist colleagues or uh, uh, whoever's listening here to to go to the NIH and, and check this uh, out. And as you go, you can they have a bunch of citations there that are really helpful as well. But let's break this down, and this is really a recap of what we just discussed over the last few slides. So let's uh, breaking it down by disease severity. So the first group is hospitalized patients that don't require supplemental oxygen. And the NIH recommends against dexamethasone or other corticosteroid use in this group, and they make a comment there's insufficient data for or against the routine use of remdesivir. This is highlighting the ACT-1 trial really didn't show much benefit in this group, but they do uh, cite some studies that uh, showed a little bit of benefit. The next group's the hospitalized and requires supplemental oxygen, and they would recommend one of the following. Remdesivir, um, and these are for patients requiring minimal supplemental oxygen, Dexamethasone plus remdesivir, uh, thinking about patients who have increasing amount of supplemental oxygen, and again recognizing that there's greater and greater value for dexamethasone as patients become hypoxic and require a um, uh, greater level of support, and then, or just dexamethasone alone, and this is when combination with remdesivir cannot be used. Um, so then the other group would be a hospitalized and requires oxygen delivery through a high-flowed uh, device uh, or non-invasive ventilation, and they would recommend one of the following, so dexamethasone or dexamethasone plus remdesivir, and then if you've been recently hospitalized with rapidly increasing oxygen needs plus uh, your inflammatory markers are up, then they would recommend baricitinib or tocilizumab uh, um, plus one of the above. And then that last group is hospitalized and requires invasive, uh, and it requires mechanical ventilation, sorry, or ECMO. And in this group, dexamethasone uh, is certainly recommended. And then in patients within 24 hours of ICU admission, uh, dexamethasone plus tocilizumab. Um, and then I don't have much experience with the seralumab, uh, Dr. Alwater, is that something that uh, you've been administering or? Um, well, that
1: is also, uh, it's a, uh, an anti-IL-6 receptor, uh, monoclonal, uh, receptor blocker monoclonal. Um, it, it should have the same activity as tocilizumab. It just hasn't been studied in combination with steroids. Uh, some people have used it because of the tocilizumab shortage.
2: Gotcha. Okay. And then we'll just highlight this quickly, but the IDSA treatment guidelines more or less mirror the NIH uh, guidelines as well. And I just wanted to talk quickly uh, because, uh, about VTE prophylaxis. There's certainly variability uh, in institutional practice uh, here. Um, COVID, as we know, is, uh, leads to uh, hypercoagulable conditions. Um, Here, I have the American Society of Hematology's uh, last recommendations is from July, and they uh, really support prophylactic use uh, 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 anticoagulation over intermittent or therapeutic dosing. And then the NIH treatment guidelines uh, are similar, and hospitalized non-pregnant adults should receive prophylactic dose anticoagulation. And for pregnant patients hospitalized with severe COVID, prophylaxis is recommended unless otherwise contraindicated. Um, But really, what about intermediate dosing and therapeutic anticoagulation? Uh, Again, recognizing that there are institutions out there uh, that are currently providing therapeutic anticoagulation for BT prophylaxis. So the American Society of Hematology makes the comment, given the variable interventions, primary outcome measures, and different methods of analysis for these randomized controlled trials, and the results from the key trials are not yet published, It remains uncertain if higher intensity anticoagulation offers net benefit over standard prophylaxis in patients hospitalized with COVID-19, particularly in the moderately ill patient. And one of those trials was published, and it's a combination of three different trials. It's a multi-platform in the New England Journal in August. Um, uh, My Hospital BMC was actually a part of the um, uh, Active4A platform. Uh, And they compared. Therapeutic use anticoagulation versus standard prophylaxis. And this was for a period of 14 days. Uh, And uh, as you can see, the primary outcome was organ support free days. So that was patients that were not on mechanical ventilation, didn't require non-invasive ventilation or uh, high flow, uh, plus survival up to 21 days. And the results show that there was actually a benefit in the therapeutic arm, 80% versus 76%, uh, with an odds ratio of one27 so they made the point that there was a 98% posterior probability of superiority of therapeutic dose anticoagulation compared to usual care. And the interesting thing was that there was a benefit regardless of baseline D-dimer. Um, of course, uh, you had to look at major bleeding events, and they were greater in the therapeutic group, uh, 1.9% versus 0.9. So for every 1,000 hospitalized patients uh, in this study, four additional patients, survi- uh, patients survived to discharge, uh, but there were seven major bleeding events. And of course, uh, bleeding events in someone who you're treating with therapeutic anticoagulation for a VT prophylaxis is is painful for sure. Um, so guidelines have not uh, been adjusted, um, but I think it's important, uh, this data is extremely important and valuable. So it'll be interesting to see um, uh, what comes down the road from it. So let's uh, summarize. Uh, we've talked about a lot here today. Um, so let's go through point by point here. So monoclonal antibody treatments are available for outpatients at high risk of progressing to severe disease or hospitalization. Antiviral treatment with remdesivir is FDA-approved for all hospitalized patients, but recommendations for use vary by organization and center. Patients on oxygen but not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO benefit most, according to the ACT-1 trial, and then that duration of illness is reduced by a median of five days, again, according to the ACT-1 trial. Antiviral and antibody-based therapies appear to work best if administered as early as possible. And dexamethasone, uh, according to other recovery trials we talked about, has lowered mortality rates in patients with severe and critical COVID-19.
0: All right. So with that, um, as a reminder to submit a question uh, for our Q&A, please click the button um, to the left of your slide window. We will try to get to as many as time allows. Um, I see a lot of good questions coming in. if we do not get yours this time around, then stay tuned for uh, some of our upcoming webinars, and it just may be answered there. Uh, so here's our first question today. Uh, how can we obtain monoclonal antibodies for post-exposure prophylaxis?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll take that one, Faith. So many uh, uh, states are still struggling to set up a capacity for post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, you know, the use of monoclonals for treatment has increased. That's good news, but it has strained the capacity. Certainly, it has in our state here in Maryland. So there's very limited capacity for post-exposure prophylaxis. Of course, this will vary state to state. Um, you should certainly check with your state health department resources page and see see what's possible.
2: And I would just say, from the hospital side, it's just not something I've seen patients, uh, you know, when I'm admitting them that they've been receiving yet.
0: Okay, fantastic. Um, And our second question today, do you keep dexamethasone after 10 days if CRP is still high and the patient is still not doing better? Or do you stop by 10 days even if CRP is still high and patient is still intubated?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I'd say uncommonly on the floor, we continue it past 10 days, although there is variation. And certainly, there inflammatory states considered. And then I think the latter part of your question gets more to intubated. So critically ill patients in the ICU who I don't regularly take care of our hospital's group is, is not in the ICU setting. But I do think there's more variability and consideration there if patients are in a hyper inflamed state. Um, but for the most part, our practice is uh, uh, 10 days. Uh, Dr. Arwater, what, what would you, what, what's your comment to that?
1: Well, I think when you're in the ICU, you always have to look for secondary infections, fungal, bacterial, alternative causes. Uh, where we've sometimes extended, especially, is in a, a different group of patients. We have some patients who um, have this uh, later hyperinflammation, part of uh, multi-inflammatory uh, syndrome in adults, MISa. Um, where we sometimes have longer tapers. So I agree with you, um, uh, Paul, not, not on a routine basis.
0: Okay. Um, our next question, how will the role of monoclonal antibodies change if new oral therapies are approved? Didn't monoclonal antibodies do better at reducing hospitalization than mol- molnupiravir?
1: The, this is a wonderful question. Uh, monoclonal antibodies do appear to be more effective, but the uh, reality is uh, they're hard to get, and you can likely pick up a oral treatment earlier if it's available in pharmacies. So, I think for the very high risk patients, especially those that are immune compromised or transplant, so on, I think there'll be still a strong emphasis towards the monoclonal antibodies. I think. For patients that may have other risk factors, uh, I think embracing oral treatment is probably how this will play out.
0: Okay. Um, Here's a question. Uh, It appears that seasonality is less of an issue with COVID-19 as evidenced by the big spike this summer. So what does that look like for the winter?
1: Uh, The crystal ball question. Um, (laughs) Who knows? But last year, uh, post-Thanksgiving, the December holidays, there was a big spike. I have no doubt there'll be another spike because of the holidays and people getting together. I do not believe it is likely going to be as high as it was last winter when we had the alpha variant. That's, of course, understanding that we don't have a new variant to deal with. So uh, seasonality, true, this doesn't seem to be hewing to sort of the influenza or RSV type uh, seasonality, but um, the uh, very uh, infectious nature of this virus, I think, means it it has become a a pan-seasonal virus, certainly in all different climates. So this will be much more like parainfluenza, adenovirus, other viruses that probably can cause disease year-round.
0: Great. And um, Dr. Long, this final question is for you. Um, is there an alternative to steroids that can be used in a patient with diabetes who is on mechanical ventilation? Yeah,
2: That's a good question. I, again, don't regularly take care of patients who are ventilated. Um, but dexamethasone certainly is the immunomodulatory medication that we have just great evidence for as as mortality benefit. So I would try to get patients on it. Um, You might reach for, you know, tocilizumab or some of these other medications that we talked about. Um, But it's certainly something I still try to get patients on.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you again to both of you. And for our audience, if you'd like to claim credit, please do click that Claim Credit button that will appear when the webcast ends. And be on the lookout for our 30-day survey. You'll get that through your email. As always, your responses will help us develop further education. We really do thank you for joining us today and have a great day. Uh, Dr. Allwater and Dr. Long, thanks again.
1: Thank you, uh, and thanks for joining, and thank you for your questions.
2: Thanks, everyone.